This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 47, Part 2 of 3, Godzilla Anime Trilogy, Main Discussion. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. This episode is split up into three parts. In the previous part, I read the film description and we had a discussion about expectations and other thoughts about the anime trilogy as a whole. In this part, Daniel and I will have our main discussion on the anime trilogy. Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters, Godzilla, City on the Edge of Battle, and Godzilla, the Planet Eater. They, they, they put us in this very bleak world at the beginning of this film. I mean, this, I mean, all these films are bleak in a way, but we start out incredibly bleak with everyone starving, weak. And then what do we have first? We have a whole ship full of elderly people that explodes, <laughs> That's a good way to start your. It sets the tone. Yeah, nicely. way to set the tone. It's got least. a ship ship full of old people exploding. It was as dark as heck. Yeah, man. and we don't find out until the very end about the solving of this mystery. We don't know until the third movie. Yeah, exactly. And that's one reason why I thought, and that's actually I think one of the main reasons was that mystery. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do an episode about this movie, not knowing about most of the stuff that's happening in it. Like. You know, I want to know the rest of the story yeah, before I go yeah. back to this, and I'm glad I did. The, yeah, the, that's very tough, uh, starting out already, and it's, uh, I dare say that's quite Japanese to have this. I mean, there are a lot of Japanese everything going on in this story. Like, there's a whole there's lot. A, there's, yeah, a lot. It's oh, yeah, all definitely. kinds of just cultural allusions to life and outlook and... Uh, state of being and how they view humanity and civilizations and so many other things. Very interesting. Uh, but of course we have, you know, the, the crisis of the elderly in Japan and that, I mean, heck right, right there. That's all I need to mention. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, say yeah, no more. So yeah, we, we start out and we got that. Then we go to our candy part which is really nice. The flashback scene of all the monsters appearing, the aliens appearing. So neat. And we're just thrown right into it. And of course, what's really going on? We don't know this in the first movie, though, after just seeing that. But what we do know after we've seen all of this is what? The aliens show up right when Earth is at its absolute most vulnerable. And then what? To take advantage of the situation. That's exactly what exactly. both of them want to do in different ways. Yeah, very different ways. And that's where the, the interesting contrast comes into play. And of course, that's developed later in the sequels. But really from that opening that opening montage, which is one of my favorite parts of the entire film, where you see the first you see Kamakiras yeah. and Dogora in the background and you see Orga show up and all these different monsters. And then you see the two different sets of ships come down and each of them says a yeah. different thing. Ship number one, Xif ship, says... We're going to convert you to our ways, lest a, a dark uh, future unfold for you. And we're going to show you that the path to salvation is through 
our kind of enlightenment, our, our dogma, I guess you could say. And then you've got the technologically obsessed be the solido who come down and say we'll solve your problem we'll build you stuff and it's also in that moment where you you kind of get the the the, the feeling that these two are um these these two alien races might be as much at odds with each other as they might be mm-hmm. with humanity but you just don't yeah. know and you know what? When we, they took advantage, just like you said, the, the Bela Solido come down because what's what happens during a crisis, especially like a massive war, a plague or something. Some people turn to religion. Some people turn to technology. And you have aliens that literally represent those two extremes come down and say, we'll save you, but you have to commit to our our religious way of thinking. And then you've got the technological aliens that come down and say, we'll give you weapons to blow the crud out of the monsters. You got to let us live there. Because our planet got sucked into a black hole, but uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll help you out. We'll help you out. We'll give you our technology. We'll help you build mechs. And most of that stuff isn't even like again. We were talking about the prequels earlier. Apparently, the the Bela Solido helped mankind start the G Force and build mechs like the mm-hmm. Gatengo from Atragon and uh, a Jaguar J mech suit and uh, Gunhead of all things. So a lot of the stuff we don't even see. But again, for the purposes of the film, it's not important. You know, all you really need to know is that. Alien A and Alien B each have a different method that they're supposedly going to use to save our butts. And you know what? We're we're just desperate enough to listen to not one but both. Not very and, smart um, humanity. Not very smart. I mean, in, in that situation, somebody says, we'll save you. Believe what we believe and it'll lead you to salvation. There's going to be people that'll be like, absolutely, let's do that. Oh, yeah. There are so many people in the world right now who would just glom onto an alien religion no matter how much BS was in it. <laughs> It reminded me, yeah, it reminded me a lot of like UFO cults that popped up in the 80s and 90s, like Marshall Applewhite, who was an insane man who started a cult called Heaven's Gate. Yes. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he got, yeah, he, um, and it's, it's about as dark as it gets. This insane man convinced a colony of people that aliens were going to come and take their souls out of their bodies. And so he gave them all poison on the supposed night this was going to happen. And of course he chickened out the next a couple of days later, like families were wondering what happened to their loved ones. And the cops raided this compound and found men, women, and children's bodies all dressed in the same clothing in their the beds, having poison. Yeah. The same shoes having mm-hmm. poisoned themselves. And, uh, there are people on this planet that are, and I, I hate to use the word gullible enough, but I'm going to say it <laughs> gullible enough to, to look at a crazy susceptible. <laughs> Let's go, yeah, we'll go with susceptible, susceptible. to, yeah, to say, to, to, to look at a guy who says, I am receiving telepathic communication from this alien that wants you to off yourself and they'll do it. Yeah. That's horrifying. So like if anybody, any critics of this movie would say, the exif, you know, like, who was gonna, who's gonna believe these aliens? Well, it ha- it's happened. Oh, plenty. It's happened many times. I mean, Marshall Applewhite's just one insane man that has tricked people into believing that some kind of extraterrestrial and or supernatural force is going to come out of the sky and uh, and solve all of our problems. And so that's horrifyingly a thing because it's actually happened and it has led innocent people to die. So that is yeah. very plausible. Yeah. The thing with Metfees, after you've seen the third movie and see the first one again, you, you notice how the camera, so does camera, quote unquote, is yeah. looking at him every once in a while and, yes. and he's not he, saying anything. He gets a lot of screen time when uh-huh. he's just walking or in the background of a room. The yeah. first like, 10, 15 minutes of the movie, 
he doesn't talk a lot except for his scene with Haruo in the cell. And yeah. he's in the background of the conference room listening. He's walking up and down the hallways listening. He's just got, and he's got a look on his face like he knows something everybody doesn't, and he does. <laughs> yeah, we don't find out until about the uh, telepathy at all. No. Until the third no. movie. And then you watch the first movie again, and you're like, oh. Oh, my I gosh. See and what's going on yeah. now. And he even smiles a few times, too. Yeah, he's got this smug look on his face. Yeah. You know, he's got one of those, he's like, I know something you don't because I am I can hear what you're thinking. And uh, my gosh, it's just, and that's one of the reasons I really hope time will be kinder to these films later on. Because now that all three of them are very readily available for anybody with a Netflix account, you can sit and watch all three at once. It might make things clearer to a lot of people and maybe make the story flow a little bit differently. These films are less than an hour and a half long. They're not very long films. You could sit down in a night and plow through all three if you've got nothing going on. Oh, yeah. There are people who have Lord of the Rings marathons, for heaven's sake. Last all day long. Yeah. I used to have Star Wars marathons back when there were only X number of movies, of course. Anime trilogy, Godzilla, Netflix, one, two, three. Sit down and have a marathon, get some pizza. You know, and I think it'll flow really, really well. Because what I did when the third one dropped was I watched one and two. And then when the second one ended, it was 3 a.m., here in the Eastern time zone. And that's when it's midnight on the other end of the country. And that's when Netflix uploaded the third one. So I just jumped right into the third one, watched all three. I tell you what, it was like watching them like that. That's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely the best way to do it. And looking back at that first one and Matt Fee's just like, it's, it takes on this incredibly, this much more sinister and less ambiguous tone. And movies have done this too, where there's like a mystery and you find out one of the characters is pure evil. Yes. When you watch the movie again, then you're like, oh, and you're watching them and you know what you're looking for. That's exactly what's going on when you go back to these three movies. And then the other part was uh, also the, the flashback scene. It has the Bilosolido aliens when they have to evacuate the Mechagodzilla facility. It may not have gone exactly as they planned in the, initially. And then, of course, later on, when we get to the second movie, it super doesn't go the way they plan. But the groundwork is laid there. And to me, watching that first film, my biggest question leaving it was, what the heck happened with Mechagodzilla? It was there. It was perfect. And then it, it malfunctioned mm-hmm. at the exact wrong time for it to malfunction. And also, both, both races want to go back to Earth. They want to go back. That's why That's why they're helping Haruo, because yeah. Haruo is the only human that really is pushing for it. And the leaks of all of the the, the secret Godzilla information about like how uh, his plan to potentially kill him off, you know, that stuff wouldn't have gotten leaked if it wasn't for Metfis leaking yeah. it. Right. Haruo's the ultimate tool. He is he is a tool. And I mean, and literally in the third one, you find out that Metfis considers him a actual tool. Like you are the tool. You are the conduit. Uh And so it's this it's like this Emperor Palpatine level of like crazy planning ahead and setting the scene and getting all the parts in the right place so that you can take your power when it's most advantageous for you. Man, like you, you don't get any of that on your first runaround watching Planet no. of the Monsters. I, it's it's little wonder people watched it and thought that there was very little going, going on, on with the characters. And yeah. these people are just walking around and looking looking weirdly. And what the heck's up with Metfees? And why is he yeah. looking all smug like that? And what's up with the, the Mechagodzilla not working and them leaving the Earth and the old people blowing up? Yeah. Like that's like talk about a dramatic way to start your movie, like we were saying before. But my my gosh. 
they do mention it briefly that it, like maybe it wasn't an accident. Like you just don't realize how sinister it is until you've seen all the movies and you go back and watch it. And like knowing that that ship's going to blow up when it launches makes things so much sadder. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's really, it's heavy stuff. Yeah. And the other two races, they want to go back to earth more than the humans do. Yep. A little wonder why. I mean, yeah. And they, because one, because the humans are afraid of Godzilla, but also because there's not really anything for them there. No, there's, and, there's nothing there. They left all the people behind and like the remaining people they left, they left everything. What could possibly be there for them other than death? And the, the Bilo Salados see it as a new home and they have a way to kill Godzilla. Yeah. The XF see it as a, see it as a new colony and they have a way to kill Godzilla. So it's most advantageous for them to go back. Yeah, that the humans don't have their own way to kill Godzilla. They have to rely on aliens to yeah. do it for them. Yep, Haruo has his way to do it, and that's the one bit of hope that they cling on to. And he's like, no, it'll totally work, and it worked. That's the crazy thing, is it did eventually was a viable plan, but it just wasn't a winning battle. There's just no. nothing that could have happened. Yeah, it's it, everything goes wrong throughout the entire <laughs> plan for the for the humans. Like, everything goes wrong. If it can go wrong, it went wrong. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Godzilla has so much fear surrounding him. I mean, this is like, this does it more than some of the other Godzilla movies do. Like the, the absolute dread, the, the hugeness of Godzilla, the, the relation to between him and the human race is even more extreme than ever. You can't get much bigger. And no, a lot of the things no. in these anime movies, you know, we were mentioning about how, you know, it's anime, you can do anything. And it's like, yeah, do you realize what the sets for this stuff would have, how much money yeah. that would have been to build sets for all this stuff? It'd be impossible. Like just the Aratrum set alone in the first, what, third of the movie, like yeah. maybe 20 minutes of the movie would have been just insane. The spaceship, you know, Can't the, the visual that. effects for all that. And the planet itself, I mean, the planet is Godzilla. It's just Godzilla. Everything on the planet has got the, the flora is Godzilla. The fauna is Godzilla. You couldn't go to a real jungle to film this. No. Building it would have been prohibitively expensive. I mean, um, a lot of times in films, that that's that's just kind of what they have to do. They have to design it all in CG. It would, it would have basically ended up like Avatar. Yeah. You know, with this this fantasy jungle. But then you lose a lot of freedoms in, another, in a lot of other places. And so looking at these films, to tell that story for that amount of money and in the amount of time, because they, they pumped three of these things out in a year. That might not sound like that much, but it's it's not a lot of time to do three really visually impressive movies. I couldn't imagine these things being anything other than anime, no. quite frankly. No, and, yeah. and of course, all the spaceships and the landing yeah. craft, all the vehicles the that ground. end up being built. Yeah. There's no the way yeah. at all. No. So in, a, in fact, they did do everything that they couldn't do. The they signal. they did take they, they, did. they took advantage of it. They took advantage, but just not in the way people were expecting no. them to. And that's where the danger of expectation comes in with how these films are being perceived right now. Is because, you know, when you say anime Godzilla, everybody thinks a thousand different things. And I'm sure that the way that these films played out, I'm I'm sure nobody thought that this was what they were going to do. And that to me is success. That is an expectation that has been thrown out the window, but not in a bad way. It's not like they said, oh, you want to see Godzilla fight Mechagodzilla for the umpteenth time? Well, guess what? We're not going to do that. Screw you. It's, it's, that's not what they did. <laughs> you know, no. it's, not, it's not at all what they this, did. Yeah, this was not a screw you from Toho. Yeah, this was not like, hey, you like Godzilla? How about this this thing that uh, has the Godzilla? It's not 
like that. It's not like they said, we're going to intentionally tee people off. No. So going back to the story here, Leland is killed. That's an interesting thing that occurs because he's one of the humans who wanted to retreat. Yeah. Yeah. So he was gotten out of the way. And I don't know if that, if it was Metfi's doing necessarily, but when he's gone, then who's in charge? Metfi's. And then Metfi's says what? Haru's going to be in charge. Exactly. And then Yuko, what does she say? That's crazy. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to be thinking, too. Exactly. We don't know, really. But, like, we because we don't know what's going on with Metfi's pushing Haro forward like this necessarily. I mean, we don't know what Metfi's is really, what his angle is until the end. But w- when we do, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is where things go even worse for everybody is when Haro is put in charge by Metfi's. Yeah. And that seals everybody's fate in a lot of ways. Yeah. If, if Leland was still in charge. But, yeah, but we should be agreeing with her. We should be thinking, yeah, yeah, he he is absolutely so driven in his hatred that he's going to get everybody killed. And well, yeah, that's what happens. That's basically what happens. He, he expends all of the weapons, all of the ammo and a lot of the personnel on taking out a Godzilla that's literally a sixth the size of the one they need to kill and it works but in the end like i said before the battle is just there's just no it just doesn't pay off it's not worth it because all these people died and all this tech was wasted only for a mountain-sized godzilla to get up and curb stomp them with like he swishes his tail and kills almost all the survivors yeah like how do you how do you fight a mountain it's just insane and looking back at it initially your first thought is Metfis, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you giving it to this insane person who's so motivated to kill Godzilla that he's willing to put everybody's lives in so much danger that like lots of people are not going to make it out of this? You know, once you get through the films and you look back at it, you think, my God, he was manipulating all of this to get Haruo in charge. For and, uh, he completely does malicious reasons. And he does it again in the second one, but it's with the Bela Solidel. Yeah. With like, well, we could retreat or we could trek across the servum infested wasteland to go see if Mechagodzilla is still around. And what is it like only two people go back to the ship? Yeah. Or three people go back to the ship? Yeah. And the people that do come back to the yeah. ship, everybody, they're the, what is it? The central committee, you know, is like, what happened? And they're like, uh, Haru's in charge now. And they're like, what? What? Whose idea was that? Medface. And they're like, oh no, okay. Oops. <laughs> Medface, why? Yeah, oops. <laughs> There's your problem. <laughs> yeah, because they, they shouldn't have listened to anybody <laughs> in this in this thing. <laughs> it's just it's just bad advice all the way around. But then it ultimately comes back in the third one. This is something I I, I thought of after I finished the third movie, thinking back on the first movie, because we've been talking about how seeing all three of them benefits the experience when they're so close together and doing them as a trilogy is really the best way to watch them. If they'd stayed on the Eratrum, would they, and and found a planet and rebuilt civilization, would they have still screwed themselves over? I would say yes. Yeah, I think so too. I think, honestly, maybe that's, because remember, there were two spaceships. There was the Eratrum and there was the Oratio. The Oratio is completely lost. Like, they lost contact with the second ship, with all the other people on it. So God knows where they are. 
a popular fan theory is that maybe Space Godzilla found them, but that's never <laughs> like this, that's never implied or anything. Maybe there is humanity still out there in the cosmos somewhere, and maybe they're going to find a planet, and maybe, maybe they already have, that they just lost contact with the Aratrum. Maybe they're fighting monsters of their own, or they're going to eventually, and the whole cycle will just repeat. Yeah. Haro reminds me a lot of Major Akira Yuki, who was played by Akira Emoto in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, this me, guy me too. has I, yeah. massive vendetta because of what he lost to Godzilla, and then he he's able to resolve it at the end. Yeah, that's his defining character trait, where he... Like, he is a vengeance character. You know, vengeance characters have been done God knows how many times. I mean, it's just, it's one of those tropes. But it's Revenge all about plots, how it's handled. Yeah. Revenge mm-hmm. plots. And it's all about how it's handled in the plot and with the character itself that makes each one unique. Like, I I love the character of Yuki in, in Space Godzilla. I think he's... I think he's just cool, man. He's got this this Eastwood vibe to him. You know, he's got a, he's got an interesting an interesting way of going about his vengeance. Yeah, and, and he's a pretty um, good actor too. I would definitely he's say he's a fantastic. And, uh, he, Akira Emoto is he came fantastic. A, like his, he came across so well with, with that character, yes. and is not. I don't think everybody would have been able to do that character. There's also a Kiriko Tsujimori, who is played by Misato Tanaka in Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, which is one of my absolute favorite Godzilla movies, and she's yeah. a revenge character. Very much so. And she's kind of similar to Yuki in that they both got kind of the military background and they lost a, someone important to them. That's, you know, like that's where most, a lot of these re- a lot of revenge stories come from. But she's definitely interesting in, in a lot of ways. And she's so, she's so driven and so, uh, like she, she hides her need for vengeance kind of well. But when she's faced with Godzilla, you look in her eyes, you look in the actress's eyes and you can just see this fire. Like she wants him dead. She wants him dead. And it's not in an overblown kind because of, when, you, when you do like revenge stories like that, you were talking about how great an actor Akira Imoto was for Yuki. There's a line because that you don't want to cross because sometimes char- like revenge driven characters can come across as hammy in the, the hands of the wrong actor because there's a lot of emotion there. If you're not going to go for a restrained vengeance then you might be too much. You know, it might be too much yelling. It might be too much drama. It takes a lot of a lot of good acting decisions to dictate that kind of thing. Yuki was really great because he was understated and you looked at him and you knew what he wanted and you knew what was up with his character. And um, Kuriko is much the same way. There's a very quiet intensity to uh, Miss Tanaka's performance of her that I just... Uh, I just love. And so those two are really good revenge characters within the Godzilla story series. And there really aren't that many. No, there really aren't. Then we get to Haro and he is, uh, driven. He is very much. He is revenge. He is like the personification of hatred for Godzilla. It goes further than these other characters in the movies did in the live action. Now we've gone to just Haro wants to, kill Godzilla and that is it. That's that is his his motivation. Yeah, and that's why he's so easy to use is because his hatred dictates his decisions. He's so focused on it that he allows the wrong one in as it were. He allows the uh you know the the, the whispering conniving mouth of Metfeast to to tell him what to do and to kind of puppeteer him in a way and take advantage of that need and um the differences between Haruo 
and the other Revenge Godzilla characters we were talking about is is pretty, like we were saying before, it's pretty steep. It's a pretty big difference. And I think a lot of that has to do with the medium involved because I think when it comes to anime, you can let a Revenge character get a little more intense and yell and be very, very aggressive without it becoming hammy. And yeah, it's harder uh, to do know. in live action too. It's harder yeah. to do in live action because you can give your character whatever face you want in an anime. You can get them whatever reaction you want. And it all comes down to the skill of the animator and the design and the, the voice actor in question. And then, of course, the script. When this plot for this film came out, I, I saw a lot of Godzilla fans. Um, I saw them roll their eyes through my computer screen because they're like, oh, it's another revenge anime character. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I just, I just kind of, you know, like, okay, that's his motivation. That's all I need to know. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't know how they're going to play it out. So why stand in judgment? And when I first saw um, the film, the first comparison I drew wasn't with uh, Yuki or any other Godzilla character. It was actually with uh, Aaron Yeager from the Attack on Titan stories, probably because of the anime connection. And um, I think the two have a, a fair amount in common. The storytelling in Attack on Titan is very different from the, the Godzilla anime series, of course. Both of them, you know, witness specifically a parent die, you know, or parents in Haruo's case. And it drives this overwhelming thirst for revenge. And in a lot of ways, they're very similar because Eren is a personification of not just his own rage and his own revenge-driven uh, motivations, but he, in the story, it's very clearly implied that he is literally a fan of, like a physical manifestation for mankind's combined rage against the Titans. And it becomes, you know, and, you know, spoiler alert for anybody who's never seen Attack on Titan, but it manifests itself in Eren's ability to turn into a Titan and fight other Titans off. That really reminded me a lot of Haruo and his the amount of drive he has he's such a driven character the fact that there's little to him other than revenge is not a weakness of the writing or anything it's intentional that is an intentional decision to make his character like you see him and you see anger vengeance rage in a human body and he has very few moments like no moments of levity in the entire series even in the, the second film when he and yuko are kind of having their flirty conversation and she's trying to get any kind of reaction out of him and he just he doesn't smile he doesn't yeah. i don't think he smiles once the entire series mm-hmm. how dissimilar is he from a monster he's an interesting he's an interesting character and i when i see him i don't just see like vengeance anime character number nine thousand. i mean he is but i i see more there to dissect at least for my part. Yeah, and how he's used is particularly one thing that sets him apart from a lot of other revenge characters. Yes, he's he is he's puppeteered big time. Yeah. So him wanting to kill Godzilla is for pride and for glory and about taking back our dignity as humans. That's his mode of operation. Exactly. That's And it's in the first movie that he specifically maps this out for her when he tells her all this a lot of importance that he wants to take back what was taken from him exactly that's that's pretty much it to a t you know he he says like we're gonna take the planet back from godzilla for humanity so not only is he revenge driven because i think a lot of people saw it and they're like well his parents died and he wants to get revenge it's that for sure but it's also he represents mankind's need for vengeance, but he's just got it ramped up to 9,000. He wants to destroy the shame that his species has. You know, mankind, 
mm-hmm. who he considers to be the the rulers of this planet. He thinks, yeah, he thinks humanity cut and run. Exactly. They cut and run. Yeah. They chickened out. They weren't brave. They weren't courageous. And that is, I think, a big part of why he is the exact opposite of that, is he sees the people before him. Because remember, he was just, what, three or four years old when he left the Earth. He sees that last generation as cowards. Yeah. Okay, so the ending of part one is very big. The humans have killed one Godzilla, and then they find out that there's another one that's six times bigger, and it's just like oh, yes. it's just like a Heisei movie. <laughs> Every strategy that they try against Godzilla just makes it worse. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite aspects of the the Heisei films as a whole. Yeah, <laughs> is the fact that you've you've got this thing, and every attempt to destroy it literally makes it come back at you worse than it was, and it just kind of solidifies the uh, the uh, a philosophy that I like to call the inevitability of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Because even when he dies in Destroya, there's Junior. His death brings Junior back, and so the inevitability of Godzilla continues. Making like the idea of humanity trying to defeat this thing that we created with even more technology and it just making it worse is a theme that I adore in the Godzilla films that it's used in. I think it's when used well, it is like it was in the Heisei films, in my opinion. I think it was I think it's just a really, really cool concept. And this film takes things up a notch. And this is where we get into the potentiality of anime. And what you can do with that medium, because this Godzilla is a mountain. He clocks in at 300 meters tall. The original Godzilla. We can use him as a good metric, too. The original Godzilla in the Showa era Godzilla, 50 meters, which is pretty darn big. But next to this version, which is called Godzilla Earth um, and merchandising and such, uh, for good reason. No, it's just it's just minuscule. Barely comes up to the top of his ankle. And the entire film has built up this Godzilla to be this giant unstoppable force. And then we kill it somehow. This giant thing comes out of the ground, just like the, the visual presentation of that moment alone. You know, even if you don't happen to be a fan of the film, I think it's worth getting through the film just for that moment. Just a, just an absolutely like, oh my God. And that's one of the things I really liked about these films is that each film has kind of a twist ending or at least like a impactful ending. Uh, maybe not so much a twist, but something you weren't expecting. We were basically nothing but pesky flies to the smaller Godzilla what are we to this thing? Like the ending of this film is like, I actually, I think it's one of the better Godzilla endings I've seen. Just one of the more impactful ones. And the way Metfeast greets him was interesting. And mm-hmm. Haruo not quite finishing his swearing of vengeance against it. Uh, and then it cuts to black. And then of course you have the end credit scene, which definitely raised some questions. And at the time, nobody really knew what was going on with this weird girl. I, uh, I remember seeing a lot of speculation that she was somehow related to Mothra and of mm-hmm. course, it turns out that was that was true. But like, talk about an interesting way to get you interested in the in the next film. Like, you've got this huge sucker punch, and then this one last question of, wait a minute, there's people still living on the planet, and then it just, oh, now I gotta wait six months for the next one. Yeah, <laughs> darn it. But um, in that way, I real I do think that like it was one of the the few ways that spacing them out like that kind of succeeded because it did build anticipation, at least for me. Uh, I know there were a lot of fans out there that just didn't really care. But for me, I saw, you know, basically two endings to one movie, the big ending and then the huh ending. Yeah. And, you know, I was interested, obviously excited to watch the second one anyway. But 
Now I had a specific reason to. I wanted to know what happened next big time. Yeah, just really, really interesting endings. And uh, I do like that these movies have end credit sequences too, because they leave you with that last couple of lingering questions. And that's always awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So part two, the second film, the, the pacing is very interesting. It's not exactly what I thought it would be. But besides from the odd pacing, overall, the second movie is pretty good. It's about technology and all that philosophical stuff we'll get to later, but it's about putting your faith in technology and losing humanity, essentially. Exactly. And how you don't want that to happen. But there are a lot of cool things in this, specifically the Vulture vehicles. Oh, yeah. And that's one thing that people saw in the previews, and they thought, oh, you know, is that Mechagodzilla? And ended up not being yeah. Mechagodzilla. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that, and I like all of the stuff with the with the technology of the Mechagodzilla city. All, all the interesting properties that this technology has, like how it makes the humans sick. Miana and Mina, they say how it's poison. Then we realize, oh, this is actually another kaiju, but it mm-hmm. and it's and it isn't a good one either. No, it's, it's Godzilla's just as been, bad. Yeah, and Godzilla's been on the patrol looking for this thing, and it's been hiding because it's been using its own technology as a camouflage, etc. All very interesting ideas, and and the nanometal and how the nanometal can reproduce and, and then expand and everything. It's very uh, very interesting. And the Bilosaludo aliens are they're they're surprised that it built itself into a city, but at the same time they're not. They're more mm-hmm. like. Pat, at, at the same time, they're really patting themselves on the back. Like, oh, yeah, they, we, we yeah. did a good job here. There's a lot of smugness in the Bela Solida. Like, from the moment they find the nanometal and they found out that it, it's it, it's still around, there's there's a lot of, like, whatever nationalism would be for a planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's their race. They're very proud of their race. They're, they basically spend the, the rest of the movie gloating about how yeah. good they are. They've got these big, pompous smiles on their faces, and they're saying, you know, lines like, our Mechagodzilla survived, and they're very happy, and they take the humans on a tour of Mechagodzilla City, like, yes, this is this is what our technology can do. And watching them is, like, you can't, re- on a certain level, you can't blame them, <laughs> because it is impressive. But on another level, you're looking at it thinking, Man, this is cool, but like, what's the what's the catch here? There's got to be a catch. There's no way there isn't a catch. And of course, the catch is that the Mechagodzilla city is, like you said, it is a kaiju. And the only real difference between it and Godzilla is that it does not have a soul. You know, it, it is not technically alive. But then the Bela Solidos start fusing themselves with it to kind of like how Katsura controlled Mechagodzilla in the original uh, yeah. Terror of Mechagodzilla, the second film. Mm-hmm. You've got that human element to it now. And I remember when I was watching the nanometal grow over Galugu's face and like absorb him, all I could think was uh, Dr. Mifune in Terror of Mechagodzilla saying... It's not quite perfect yet. It needs a living brain to tell it what to do and to make it perfect. And that's what I thought of. I thought of, because, I mean, the Bilisaludo are already supposed to be this universe's version of the dark hole, the black hole uh, simian aliens. Yeah. Just like the ex, just like the Exifird, the Exilians. It's, it's very clear that that's what they were going for. But what an intelligent way to use that idea of it's. 99.9% perfect, at least to the Bela Solido through their eyes. But how do we make it perfect? We merge it with ourselves and we make ourselves better and we make it better mm-hmm. at the same time. And in doing so, they have basically created Godzilla 2.0. They don't see it like that, but that's what they've done. 
the focus on the Bila Salado and their their fascination, almost reverence for technology, and mm-hmm. that they are almost as reverent to Mechagodzilla as Metfis is to Ghidorah. And of course, it's kind of an interesting way because the humans view the kaiju on their planet completely oppositely. It's it's really quite fascinating because I, I see this as a trilogy of uh, perspectives, not not just of films, but of perspectives, because to me, the first film is about mankind's relationship to its monster, Godzilla. And then the second film is about the Bela Salado and its relationship to its monster, Mechagodzilla. And then the third one is the same thing, but with the Exif's relationship to their monster, mm-hmm. Ghidorah. I, I also like to think about people's relationship to technology just as a interesting thing to think about and an interesting story. You know, like there are a lot of stories to tell in there and like just it's it's really interesting and it makes you think, especially as it towards it gets towards the end. But just. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Blade Runner and Westworld and the, yes. the TV show. And both of those make you think a lot. And like Westworld especially has gone uh, to such a cerebral point that I'm really uh, beyond impressed. But yeah, it it makes you think about humans' relationship with technology. The the Bila Sataludo aliens are so smug, but they're also just, yeah, they have a superiority complex. Oh, yes. (laughs) And the humans that don't want to go along with this, what do they say? They say, oh, you're too weak. That's essentially what they say. You know, if you don't want to join with our technology and defeat Godzilla, you're not made of as tough material as we are, literally. God only knows what they would have continued to do after that point. And um, Take over again, Earth. this yeah. <laughs> ex- exactly. This is where it calls back to the first film where Metfis tells Galugu, you know, who knows what Mecha Godzilla would have turned its fangs on next after killing Godzilla. Yeah. Which is already pretty clear. But if it wasn't clear enough by the end of the second film, the Bila Salado have their eyes on our planet. And of course, it's not our planet at this point, but they've got this planet in their sights and they have the means to take it. You know, it's an entirely different kind of a non-religious way of looking at it. But make no mistake, Mecha Godzilla is their god, essentially. They look at it as... Metfis looks at his god. You know, it's the same thing, but just through a different lens. There is a lot of talking, and I really feel like the dub would work wonders on this particular film's enjoyment levels. Yeah, I mean, if it it did as good of a job for part three, then I'm sure part two would be significantly enhanced. Because uh, about halfway through part two is the mother load of all cerebral talking moments in the movie. And reading it... It reminds me of that part in Beetlejuice where they're like, this reads like stereo instructions. But they, <laughs> but right. it, it's fascinating. But I believe the subtitles and the Japanese create a barrier that probably sh- isn't necessary. Because you, in order to fully understand what's going on, and that way your brain can absorb it, rather than absorbing it through reading the subtitles. It's less of a exactly. fight if the English is telling you what's going on with this, because the, it, it does go very deep and I, I like what they did with it. But if you're reading the subtitles for it, it's a little tough. We'll it say, I will tough. acknowledge that as some, as somebody who loves subtitles as much as I do yeah. hearing from hearing this from me is surprising, but I, uh, yes. yeah, that's my position. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. I I see exactly where you're coming from. I'm I'm a big subs person as well, and a lot of my favorite dubbed things are are nostalgic, as most people's are, I think. But as we were talking about earlier, anime opens things up in a really really interesting way, and it allows for. Like a lot of times when you're talking about a Godzilla film being dubbed, there's that feeling that you're missing something, you know, you're missing a, a, something that was, you know, done in maybe the 50s or 60s that nobody thought Americans would care about or understand. But right now, anime is being taken very seriously in America, and there's a concerted effort to make things as accurate as possible. So I feel like if I watch the anim- the English dubs for the anime Godzilla films, I'm not missing like anything very significant and i'm i'm so thankful the subs are there because that to me is i mean that's about that those subs are pretty accurate from what i understand yeah. except for a, a couple of moments where yuko very clearly yells senpai and it subtitles it as, as haruo mm-hmm. and i was like that's not what she, that's not what she said but yeah. other than that the subs are, are pretty accurate and i i'm glad that they're there for for personal reasons because those subs are going to be a big part of um when i eventually do the the novelizations for the novelization the godzilla novelization project those subs are going to be a big help yeah but for trying to sit down and simply understand this very dense story um, having it in English with a translation that's accurate is really the way to go because to me, anime works just as well, no matter what language you put it into, as long as the performances in the script are good. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have a lot of anime. I, I really love to watch bilingually and like for something like this, where the, there aren't even that many Japanese characters in the anime Godzilla films, yeah. like like a third of them are aliens and a third of them are, um, Bila Sol- you know, yeah. Bila Solida and the, the other third is Exif. And then the other third is human. And I mean, like you got a guy named Leland for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, he's and not Adam. Japanese. Adam, uh, these guys aren't Japanese. So like even watching it in English might be a more, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. it, it seems to me it would work perfectly well. And with Haruo and Yuko and a couple of other characters being the only Japanese characters in the entire thing, maybe even in terms of the film's universe, it might make more sense for them to be speaking English with other English-speaking creatures anyway. Like, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? And also with Miana and Mina, with their sort of primitive speak, I thought, mm-hmm. well, let's see how the subs or how the how the dubbing does with that, if, if it's going to sound hokey or not. And then I was like, oh, not hokey. Is fine. Yeah. I actually found, I don't remember what her name is, but the actress who um, played one of the two twins, I found her on, on social media and um, she was really, she was really excited to have been in a Godzilla movie and to do this, this voice. And uh, like the voices that the voice that she, I don't, again, I don't, I believe she did only one of the twins off the top of my head. The, the performances were great. I honestly, the dub performances for the films are really, are really, really good. Um, I've heard a lot of people complain about Haruo for, for whatever, like his specific, specifically his dubbed voice. It sounds very American. It sounds very American. Uh, very, you know, very, we're going to do this, you know, yeah. kind of that, that anime, that anime flair to it. Like if you listen to a lot of anime dubs, a lot of them do have that kind of very bombastic, we're going to go do this thing now, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of, you know, very thing. And that's not really what Haruo's voice sounds like in the dub, but it does have that very this was recorded in America kind of a feel to it. And yeah. maybe that's turning people off. I've heard people say he's even whinier in the dub. I, d- I didn't really get whiny from him. <laughs> I got 
Like, I'm not really, I don't really get whiny from Haruo anyway. No. I don't really get whiny from him, but I've heard a lot of people just say, hey, we got this whiny protagonist who's blah, blah, blah. And again, y'all can have your opinion, but to me, it just didn't read as whiny or irritating or anything. There's no point in the story where, like, anything unintentional about Haruo annoyed me. Like, there might have been moments when his character made annoying choices or did annoying things, but, like, <laughs> there was, like, that was supposed to make you go, huh? When you were watching it. Yeah. it there was nothing unintentional about his character and the way he moved or talked or delivered dialogue that was, or that made me roll my eyes. Like, I don't generally get annoyed by movie characters that, that easily, but he just didn't read annoying to me. But, Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah, and to me, the dubbing yeah. uh, the, and the original soundtrack, the the voice of Metfi's for both is really good, and that's probably the He's hardest great. part and most crucial part to get right. I would say, because yeah, if, 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 if he sounds hokey, then you're in trouble because you you can't have he's too central to everything that that you can't screw that up. You have to get somebody yeah. who's going to be convincing as all get out when they're doing this. When Metfiz asks the Bila Saludo to repair that device, and it's, it's the, uh, it looks like a little coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is the, the device that we don't know what it's for. Yeah, you don't know what it's specifically for. It's, it's you can implied. Guess in, in, in part yeah, two, but you don't yeah. really know. You don't know. Like, yeah. you have to watch the third one to find out. Yeah, and then he, we have him use some of the nanometal on this device. Yeah. On it. And you're sort of instilling evil from one end into more evil. That's, that's interesting. They're doubling the, down on the evil aspects yeah, the, of this thing. That's right. By the, including the, the nanometal. Yeah. It's a fusion. It is a fusion of the two things. The evil of the first, um, yeah. alien race in the second film makes the evil events of the third film possible in a strange way because really Metfis can't really do what he's planning without this this little talisman yeah and again it's it's implied of what's going to happen with this thing at the like the after credit scene of part two Mm -hmm. but you don't know what's going to happen until you get to the third one and then oh boy yeah and then (laughs) the Bila Saludo they don't know what this is for no they have no idea they're just yeah Metfiz is using the Bila Saludo as well. He's such a cunning character because he basically, the 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 Bila Saludo have a an interesting relationship to the Exif because they they kind of want the same thing, but they're working together in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they have a weird relationship to them where one Metfiz just kind of floats around looking smug like he's planning something, and the the Bila Saludo essentially write off his you know religious devotion as oh you and your god that you pray to blah blah blah. They you know well we'll fix your little dinky talisman. It's not like it does anything anyway. Yeah, uh, they're too confident. <laughs> and they're if anybody's yeah. predictable, it's them. Yes, you can. Totally, they're very calc- like yeah. They're, they're easier to read even than the humans, I imagine. To the exit. So and they're like, oh, fine. What, what what harm could that do? And then, of course, it gets them all killed. <laughs> of, yeah, all, all of them. Of them. <laughs> they, they're they're kind of like the, the droid in Star Wars that tells you what percentage you have of failure on your mission. Yeah. They've got all the numbers, but they don't have the spontaneity, I suppose, when something might not go their way to deal with it. Yeah. And then they totally are against religion, too. They view it as weakness. Yeah. Which is a very yeah. techie thing to... Uh, to do it, that is part of that ends up being their downfall as well because they uh that's again their fault because they actually 
give any kind of credit or trust to Metfees, and that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Nope. <laughs> One thing listeners might not know is that my favorite kaiju of all time is King Ghidorah. Yes, I know the name is supposed to be Ghidorah in English. Yes, there's a whole YouTube video about it, etc. <laughs> but I know one thing is, is that in the first Ghidorah movie, it's Akiko Wakabayashi, and she says the word. And she says the name, and it's King of Ghidorah. Ghidorah sounds strange to me. Ghidorah sounds wrong, actually. But, oh well. Um, but in, and yet in this, in the anime, what do they say? Ghidorah. So that's yeah. not, so that's technically wrong too. Cause it should <laughs> I have been Ghidorah say, yeah. and instead of Ghidorah, but they say Ghidorah and oh well. But that's right. Either way, the name is said in part two and it's when Metfis tells Haruo the name of the God that the Exif worship. It's Ghidorah. It isn't said because you can't even say it because there's this taboo of it's like a religious taboo kind of and because you do not mention the the say the real name of of your god but exactly it, it's, uh, that's it's, it's so creepy. cinematic though the way that he the way that that, it, that we're looking at him we're looking at them when he's when metfis tells it in his ear that's just great i, I believe that that's a fantastic way to set up a genuinely uh evil kaiju like this is to is to do that. We can't even say it, but we can, I'll whisper it in your ear. That's great. It was, that scene is, might be my favorite actually of the, of the film or one of my favorite moments of the film where you see him walking towards Haruo and Haruo's like kind of getting a little creeped out. Like Metfis, what are you doing, man? It's effective. And he bends down and says it, but you don't hear it. And then it continues on with the movie and we get our last battle. And then of course they revisit that during the end credit scene in a really interesting way. They literally played the entire scene again, shot the same way, but they just introduced the difference of having the name heard. And that's the end of the film. It was good. And it really set up how terrifying Ghidorah is in this new film. Uh Yeah. And the first Ghidorah film, they they do it so well. And I remember mentioning in the episode about this, how awesome it was, you know, where it's Akiko Wakabayashi and she says, King of Ghidorah. Yeah. And everybody's looking at her like, wait. And they have this expression on their face like, wait a minute, what is she talking about now? This is not good. This does not sound good at all. There are a lot of horror movies that do stuff like that. It is. It's almost like don't say like don't say the name or you're like or you don't don't chant the name three times. You know, yeah, I don't mean? say it's, Beetlejuice three times. You don't know? say Beetlejuice three times. But if you <laughs> like, maybe maybe you should say Beetlejuice three times because then Ghidorah won't show up. <laughs> like, yeah, because it's 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 worse. I refused to set a single expectation for this movie, and I think it really made my viewing experience better than a lot of other people's because even Toho saying, yeah, this film's going to have a great Mechagodzilla versus Godzilla battle. Oops. I didn't really listen to that because, you know, I, I was just like, okay. And I don't even think I heard that until later on because I, I didn't really need to know anything about the film other than the trailer that I saw and the cool poster with Mechagodzilla's head kind of laying in the middle of the ruined city that was all I really needed to know. And I went in and the second film didn't disappoint me at all. And it seems to be the film out of the three that has garnered the most ire from fans. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be the one that's been the punching bag the most 
uh, out of all three of them. I've, I've heard a lot of more generally positive stuff about the third one. A lot of people said the first one was, was you know, this, that, or the other thing, boring, whatever. Um, but the second one really seems to have irked a lot of people. Yeah. I, I really think it all comes down to Mechagodzilla. And as I mentioned before, I am actually a really, really big fan of the way they handled Mechagodzilla in this film. I I love the risk that they took, and it's unique. I don't mind being surprised. Yeah, yeah. I like I like different takes on things. I mean, we've seen you know Mechagodzilla as the kind of standard Mechagodzilla for five films now, with three different interpretations of the character. And of course, that's not including comic comics and manga and you know like yeah. all these different things. And it's all kind of fit within a very similar framework and to have the character experimented with it's you know i'm not saying everybody needs to go and love this thing it's not gonna please everybody but it doesn't have to to me the idea of a mechagodzilla city paid off because uh for, for a number of reasons and the entire that entire last uh last sequence of the film with the city fighting godzilla my only real kind of gripe with that scene was that we kind of lost the sense of scale for godzilla he didn't look that big but you know he's big, so it didn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. But other than that, that sequence was just really phenomenal and um, like really exciting. And it really looks like they're going to win. It kind of reminded me of a Godzilla concept for a film that never got made. Yeah. Um, where Godzilla fought a kind of Skynet controlled kind of big city's worth of mechs. Yes. And um, he basically marches through this this fortress to uh, fighting off all these robots to reach the mainframe. And it was one of these, it was a story submission from the late 80s that, or the mid to late 80s, that didn't get selected for the next film because there was a big competition that was held in the late 80s to decide what the next Godzilla story was going to be in Biollante 1. This particular Godzilla concept didn't, but they ended up taking it, removing Godzilla, rewriting it, and then they made the movie Gunhead out of it. Um, that's kind of it. Ultimately, kind of became Gunhead, or at least influenced Gunhead in some way. So I kind of the, the ever since I learned about that years ago, the idea of Godzilla fighting a city that fights back has always really fascinated me. So finally seeing it happen was a cool payoff for someone like me who's fascinated with like Godzilla lore and all of the interesting places that the franchise could have gone, but didn't. So mm-hmm. I liked that. The design for the city was really, really cool. Um, its properties were really interesting. And quite frankly, the design for the Mecha Godzilla himself before he melts down and turns into the city and the, you see him in the flashbacks and there's right. a, a, a wonderful action figure that got made of that character, even though you never see him. Um, I really kind of dig that look too. It's really, really cool to me to have a look that interesting and that kind of angular and spiky and very anime and then not use it is really a hugely ballsy move. But to me to have that look and then say the story would be better served by taking it in this slightly more ambitious, risky direction and then to actually commit and do it. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. Just don't advertise that there's going to be a big battle with. Don't do that. Yeah. Not so much. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I I agree with everything you said. I mean, it's, it's a grand idea and it reminds me now thinking of it. It kind of reminds me of Superman three. Actually. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Which is from 1983 where, you know, the guy's sister gets uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. integrated into the, machine and everything, you know, it's kind of, yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously Superman three is a bit different tone than this is <laughs> slightly. <laughs> There's no Richard Pryor character. 
in this. No, no, there's not. <laughs> nor, is, nor is there a uh, John C. Riley character like in Kong Skull Island either. Yeah, there's really there's no there's real no Sekizawa the, yeah. character either. No, there's like no, no there's, funny there's Sekizawa not. anything. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be like a Marvel movie where you're cracking jokes every two seconds, even though the world is ending, um, which which works for those films really well. I enjoy those films a lot, but it didn't have to have a Sekizawa type. Ha ha. I'm over here eating my egg uh, kind of a character. You know, yeah. I didn't really need it. Didn't need somebody complaining about their corns, you know, even yeah, though that no, was an English nobody word. in the newspaper <laughs> office cracking jokes and. No Frankie Sakai beating up goons. Um, <laughs> nothing like that. Um, or angry bank robbers yeah. <laughs> spitting in the sand. But yeah, it didn't it just didn't you know, it didn't it didn't need that. No, and I, I love the mood and the tone as it is, like I said, and is not everybody's kind of vibe that they want in a Godzilla movie, but I do appreciate no. that they did do it. Um, another thing I appreciate that they did was that that nice visual where Godzilla uses his atomic breath slash ray, essentially, super powerful mm-hmm. ray. He attacks the Mechagodzilla city for the first time. The beam comes out, and then what does it do? It refracts into, like, a bunch of different beams off of it. But that impact is and the refraction of those beams, that looks really good. It was really impressive. The Godzilla's ray is really cool in the trilogy. Yeah, it is. The different ways that it's used and the fact that it can almost be used to snipe in a weird way. Like in the very first film, when the landing craft is attempting to flee to space to get to the Aratrum and Godzilla shows up at the base and Harwo sees it all happen. It's the explosion that kills his parents. Godzilla... You kind of see some sparks and then he goes dark for a second and then you see a blink and you miss it blue beam yeah. come out of his mouth, hit the ship and it explodes. And it really looks like more of a concussive force than an explosive one because it it damages the ship and kind of pushes it off course, but it doesn't really explode it on the spot. It just kind of knocks it out of the sky. And that's an interesting idea. Just having it almost it almost looked like they designed it so that it wouldn't explode when he when he hit it, but it still was so powerful that it like knocked it off its course and destroyed it inevitably in the end, uh, of course. Yeah, like it but knocks you down even if it he, misses yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that it just it just goes in all these directions and it does these crazy things, but the the moment like that you mentioned in part two with the refracting beam it's it's just one of those great visuals that just looks good and it works in anime where it might not work for live action and um seeing all the things Godzilla's beam did 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 put me in mind of Shin Godzilla's crazy spike beams yeah and that come out of his back but um it worked for that film because it wasn't too crazy and of course you know it was Hideaki Anno and you know he's most famous for his anime but so it, it, that moment kind it was it worked really well. But there are a couple of moments in the anime films where I looked at the way the ray was used and the way Godzilla was used and just a lot of things in general. And as we were discussing before, you can't do that in live action and have it look as appropriate or compelling, I think. And there's ways to do it. But the way they did it in this film just really took advantage of the anime format and uh, made a really kind of an exciting climax for this where it really looks like things are going to go the right way, but you know, they're not. And then of course they don't. Yes. Which gets us to the ending of the second part, which I, I can almost see people going and, and like rating it bad. Like as soon as that ends, like, yeah, that, that, yeah. It, yeah. Like with, with her and everything. And it's like, Oh, the humanity at the end is like, Oh my God, crushing me right now at this ending. 
Yeah. That was tough. That's like possibly one of the toughest endings to anything Godzilla that I've ever seen. It was brutal. It's it's tough. It's definitely operatic. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it was one of those moments where I was really appreciative of uh, the score and the way it was used. Yeah, Yeah, the score really did it too. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the one one thing we haven't talked about yet was Takayuki Hattori's score for all he'd scored all three of these films, and um, there are a lot of people that don't really dig his his style, but I um, I love his score for Space Godzilla and his score for um, Godzilla two thousand. Those are two of my favorite Godzilla scores. I really like his style, and when I heard he was doing these films, I saw I mean I saw a lot of people roll their eyes and go, oh it's that guy, but my my first thought was, oh he's back. I like his style, and um, he he's a great uh, composer for anime specifically, so I was really interested to see where he was going to go with this score and for all three of these films because I kind of – I almost think of it as one really big score, almost like I think of the films as one really big film. Yeah. yeah. So it's like one really big work. It works a lot of the time really, really well, and um, the the ending of part two, movie, movie, part, movie number two – is one of his best moments, I think, of the trilogy and just how his music music is used. Wow, you said operatic, and that's I think yeah. that works really, really well. It's just it's just the visuals and what's happening and the it is it's it an is an abrupt a series ending of, too, really. It is like very it is it very just, abrupt. Just boom, like lays it on you right at the end. I was like, wow, gosh, Hattori really did an amazing job with these anime movies. You you, you had to make a tragic sounding score for this and it's not necessarily easy you know i i really hope that i mean i know there are like i said before there are fans that aren't big fans of of his particular music i i'd like to think that he's perhaps been redeemed in their eyes a little bit by these films but i just the way these films have been received by a lot of fans thus far i i doubt it which is really too bad because his work in these films is wonderful and he's a really wonderful composer and i I, and again, I, I love his previous two scores. And when I found out he was doing these two, th- these three movies, I was ecstatic because I thought, man, what is he going to bring to this? And it's, it's a big one for me because my first Godzilla movie that I saw any part of was Godzilla 2000, um, when I was really, really young. And I still love that film. And it's one of my favorite scores that he ever did of all these movies. And it's one of my favorite Godzilla scores from that film. And so when he came back, it was really cool to to see just on a personal level. And I was really excited to hear a new Hattori Godzilla score because we're in a, an interesting moment now where we're never going to get to hear another Akira Ifukube score again. We're never going to get to hear another new Masaru Sato score. You know, that's we're just at that point in the series history where these these wonderful gentlemen just aren't with us anymore. And so to have a a veteran of the series come back is really cool to me and uh and it was amazing his scores for these films are great and um i actually don't own them on their own yet but it's a it's something i'd like to acquire one of these days coming up soon to to see if the listening to them on their own listening to the score on its own works as well as it does with the visuals in the film getting on to part three of the anime series this is the one i actually like the most out of the three it's easily my favorite one it's not just because of Ghidorah, even though it, it, a lot of it is. This is where everything gets tied up. And the philosophy is, uh, is completely done so well that, that it really makes an impact. We're going to talk later about the more specific philosophical stuff, but uh, th- there's a lot to appreciate in part three. Oh, I totally agree with that. I, 
part three is my it it might honestly be my favorite i think it's probably the 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 best put together of all of them because not only is it just thematically and cinematically rich and all kinds of interesting things and philosophically rich but it's uh it's put together nice it's it's exciting and it it flows really really well and um yeah the pacing is it good. ties everything together the pacing is really really good um it does feel like a climax in the ultimate sense. It's about the most climactic climax you can, you know, imagine for this ser- this franchise, this three film series that they've done. But I was my eye. I don't think I closed my eyes for the whole hour and a half ish that it ran. I was um I was completely enthralled, and I just was wondering what they were gonna do. And I ran the gamut of emotions. It was sad in parts. It was terrifying in parts. It was exciting in parts. And. Uh, I think it's I, I think of the trilogy it's probably the best and it's the payoff for um watching the other two, which is as good as I think they are. You know, if anybody out there didn't really feel the first two and you're just like, I don't think I should watch the third one, give it a shot. Watch the third one. You know, you might be surprised it and I think you'll be surprised at how much more enjoyable uh it makes re-watching the first two, honestly. Yeah, 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 and that's what we've sort of done in this episode is say the third one enhances the first two when you rewatch them. And these are pretty rewatchable. I probably watched Planet Eater four times, five times in the probably mm-hmm. the past week and a half just to make sure that I was completely on the same page with what was going on. And then I did the English dubbing to uh, further get uh, the better explanation of it in English because I think the, the script for the dub is really good the the beginning of course is haunting right off the bat and it oh, yes. maintains this mood the entire time really it's this creepy voiceover from metfees who says how they've been messing around with earth the entire time and we'll get more to that we'll get more about that in, in the philosophy section later but uh, very chilling it's thrown right out there that yes haro is the ultimate tool of Alien, I don't know, see, invaders, but invaders really isn't the point. Or invading yeah, really isn't the point. Like... Yeah, it's just worse <laughs> than that, actually. <laughs> so in the first half hour of this, it's the run-up to where the action really starts. In this, we get the events in the second part tied up. There's this essentially mutiny. And for once, the humans say no to the aliens. Yeah. They're finally kind of standing up for themselves a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and they're like, wait a minute. Finally. This, this doesn't, it does not seem that Haro is that crazy uh, that, that he would defend Godzilla. Then, they, then they're like, wait a minute, what, what exactly was going on with the city anyway? And then they mm-hmm. realize, okay, this, this is what, it, what we're afraid it was. And then they say that, that oh, if Haro is what? A religious icon now in the eyes of the exif and all the humans that are following uh metfees down this road yeah they see him as essentially a chosen one figure at this point he's um he's not you know just like this vengeance driven person he's got um that you know the the hand of the exif's god is guiding him somehow and he's he's to be the one to see people through to salvation and uh he doesn't really want any part of it but as the you know, because now the Bela Salado are completely out of the way. And so this is where Metfis really starts kicking into gear and creates his Ghidorah cult <laughs> of uh, humans. And this is the part where it really reminds me of um, the uh, thing we talked about earlier with the Heaven's Gate cult, 
with all these people believing in this this extraterrestrial force that's going to take them away. In the end, it does end up being a, a little too similar to the Heaven's Gate cult and similar cults, where it's, it ends up being a suicide thing in the end. But um, it is it is interesting to see it all kind of come apart at the seams because I mean, at this point, humanity's numbers are very low on Earth. There's, you know, the Bela Solido were gone. It looks like their last hope is gone. So, like, if you thought Metfees was smug-looking in the last two movies, now he knows he's got them in the palm of his hand. <laughs> and he's he's ready to he's ready to rock. And everybody else is joining the, the cult, too. A lot more humans are glomming onto the philosophy mm-hmm. because of just how messed up everything has gotten. The part where Metfees tells... Hero, your hate for Godzilla has to overcome your resistance to believing in God. And it makes him quite upset. And he's starting to realize what Metfees is really doing. But he only realizes far too late what really is going on. Yeah, it doesn't it does not go well from that point on, but it's it's he does he doesn't realize immediately what's going on here. And this is where the groundwork for the previous from the previous two films and if you've been paying attention to Metfees, this is where things start really kind of coming together. The thing about these moments is that you can feel the tension start to rise because we know something's up and we're still not entirely sure what we know. You know, we we all know it's going to end in Ghidorah coming, but we don't know what the cost is going to be yet as audience members. And we're not going to know how that's going to affect the characters and what characters and um this entire first chunk of the movie where you're seeing the, the surviving humans kind of giving into this very easy way out this very like, okay, so if you believe in this, this thing, then it's going to save you. And uh, when you're in a desperate situation like that, you'll believe anything a very good spoken person will tell you, you know, if you're in a very, very desperate situation like that. And um, there's definitely a lot of political uh, overtones to that as well as religious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, history is history is full of sweet talking people who promise power, and then ultimately it, it's very very uh, very bad for the people in the end. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure I don't need to start listing out individual countries that have done that, but that is certainly not a new thing. No, and it's not new and it's not new for religions either. But um, there's I, I detected overtones of both of those uh, those things while I was watching the film because Metfees speaks. At once like a uh, religious leader, but also almost like a political leader at the same time. But in his very calm, cool, creepy, uh, understated kind of a way, we know he's up to something. The humans that fell for Metfees' lies pay, you know, horribly, almost before they know how badly they've messed up. And then Miana actually finds Metfees. He says, you've been here this whole time. And he starts talking to her telepathically. And we're like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and then the big revelation drops on us that he's been telepathic this whole time. He's been reading everybody's minds. He's been reading the Billa Saludo's minds, even. Uh, everybody. She says, it's because you weren't talking. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I, when other people were, you were just sitting there. And that's what he was doing. And that's what he was that's doing what in he the was other doing two movies. The, yeah. And the other two parts, yep. because uh, that's just not something that we knew, though. And it takes one of the Hotuans, specifically one of the twins, to to uh, discover him and unmask him as a, a manipulator. And she exactly. says, why did you do this? And he's like, well, trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. One way trust. But yeah. And then we get the, the scary dream. We're not in dream, but 
we say induced nightmare. Yeah, a vision, perhaps. And we see her in the soup. Oh, God. Yeah, that creeped me out because initially I didn't know if it was a... Yeah, I thought he killed her. If it was a dream or not. The, yeah, I thought he started, killed her. And then, yeah. yeah. And then he wakes up. It's a dream. And then it cuts right to that next scene where what he saw in his dream is essentially happening. And they've got the big old cauldron and they're taking sips. And of course, my first thought was, oh, my God, he cooked and is drinking a Mothra twin. Yeah, I was oh like, are they God, drinking her blood? Is that where we're? Is that the, where we are now? Would they have done that? And of course, my answer was, yeah, they would have done that. It's the it's the anime movies. They've done just about everything in that department, so <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, like why would I be surprised if that's what they did? And of of course, I thought, no, this I would not be surprised. This is exactly what they would do. The way it was put together totally got me and uh, creeped me out a little bit. And then it, it just got creepier from there, that entire sequence. Yeah. And then the, the fantastic sequence with the, uh, the, with this cult and, and they, and mm-hmm. the cauldron. And then finally the Gatora appears uh, in that shadow. It starts cutting up, ripping all these people apart, cutting parts off of them. Oh God. Yeah. The sound <laughs> that it makes when that happens was eerie as, can be oh my. yeah it was it was eerie it, that's the most like a horror film that these anime movies go i think it got very gross very quickly and you didn't really see a lot of it it was more implied violence but sometimes that's scarier yes it is it's a lot scarier and uh it, it gave me some raiders of the lost ark vibes actually that entire sequence with the the entire room's worth of uh you know very very devoted um, people, you know, having this religious experience that ultimately kills them off. Uh, but of course it doesn't, you know, <laughs> Metfeast's face doesn't melt or anything, but it's, you know, he's, he's the one controlling the whole thing, but it, it made me think of that. But the way they shot that sequence was so unique and truly terrifying <laughs> that I was watching it like with my hand over my mouth for a couple seconds. The first time I saw the film, I was just thinking, my my God, this is like really terrifying. Ghidorah is actively creeping me the heck out right now. And then it goes up to space and you see that aspect of it summoning. And at that point, you know, space time just opens and Ghidorah's head snakes out of the, uh, uh, the singularity. Yeah, singularity. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, ra- and it starts going around the Aratrum and that scene, like some clips of that are in the, the trailer that they were, one of the trailers they released for the film. And I'm seeing the scene. I thought, wait a minute, are, are they going to, are they going to destroy the ship? And my first thought was, if they do, then what's going to happen to humanity? Like if they do that, then I don't know where they're going to take the rest of this movie because that's their way off the planet. Yeah. If there's any movie ever made, that's going to have the, the guts to do it. It's this movie. Absolutely. They're going to they're going to do it. Every Belisolido probably everywhere is dead. All of the surviving men, women and human children in the universe potentially are dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the creepiest thing is they're on the deck watching it all happen with a smile on his face as the ex of high priest. Yes. Who yeah. And he's, wanted, and he's wanted literally to... laughing as the, the whole, as the whole destruction occurs. And it's and it's like gravity is doing the damage. Yes, it's literally just gravity and, you know, this, this incredible real force that exists, you know, yeah. just doing its thing. It just, it just like punched me in the gut and I was like, I don't know where they're going to go from here, but I cannot wait to find out. But I was genuinely creeped out at that point. I was like, there's, there's, there might be nothing this film isn't brave enough to do. 
at this point. Yeah. Another fantastic sci-fi horror thing that I have to say was incredible was the fact that they they read that there's no life signs before they're yes. actually dead. Like they're dead before they're dead. Like that that is yeah. creepy and scary and extremely effective. And they, you know, because they have the the woman there who's she's like reading off all this stuff off the screen, and she's like, uh, "We're technically dead. Yeah, there's no life signs here, right where we're standing." <laughs> like that's <sighs> that's incredible, that, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, that was a fascinating aspect of the whole thing. Just that that thought of this this thing is so powerful. It's so beyond our capability to understand what it's doing, why it's doing it, that. It shows up and you technically don't exist before you don't exist. Like, you're, <laughs> it's just, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And the way Ghidorah is handled in this is really good. It's a space monster. That's how Ghidorah has been originally. Uh, and it's also yeah. the fact that it's on a completely different level of existence. It adds another level of mystery and another level of sort of invincibility. Because it can, yeah. it can touch you and kill you, but your hands go through it if you touch mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it touches but cannot be touched. That entire scene when it comes down and it starts to encircle Godzilla was just really an incredible moment because it bites him and it constricts him and it, it lifts him. This 300 meter mountain lifts him into the air and Godzilla swings at it. And his hand just goes through it, and I just I'm just sitting there watching it, thinking, Ghidorah, you cheating bastard! <laughs> like yeah. that's not okay. <laughs> like why would you do? But it's it was just unbelievably cool and an interesting angle on Ghidorah too, which is strange because if you look at it, of the monsters in the the films, not the the whole universe as as a whole with the prequels or anything, but just the just the films, Ghidorah might be the most traditionally presented yeah. of the monsters other than Godzilla himself. And that's saying, that's saying something, mm -hmm. but even, even then, because Mechagodzilla is totally out there. Godzilla's mostly plant in this, um, you know, Mothra is literally just an egg, but Ghidorah's got his three heads. And in silhouette, you do see the wings and the body. It's, it's all there. Um, the, the traditional body is there, but you don't ever see that. And he's, he's even got his cackle that you hear in his visions so it's very easy to look at it and tell, yeah, this is Ghidorah and he's from space. And, you know, like you've got these Exilian type characters that are controlling him. But other than that, it's very, you know, it's, it's a very different character, but still recognizable as Ghidorah. And that's a fine line to walk because you've, you know, you've essentially taken this very well-known character and you've, you've basically filtered it through Lovecraft. Yeah. And, um, like the, the, that's what I really got vibes from, from here. Cause I'm a huge HP Lovecraft fan. Man, it's just, this thing was an elder god. This thing was an interdimensional being that comes from the stars and, you know, comes into our dimension and it does not obey our laws of physics. It does not obey anything in our universe. If there's any creature in Toho's vast pantheon of uh, variations on different monster characters that could, that is a god, mm -hmm. literally a god, it is Ghidorah. Whether or not he's got any, like, he is actually a divine thing, or if he's simply worshipped for being extraordinary by a religious race of aliens is never really talked about. But it doesn't need to be, because this thing's a god. You know what I mean? You look at it, it is a god. And even if it's not actually 
you know, a spiritual kind of a thing. It's got godlike powers. It is essentially a titan from Greek mythology. It's untouchable, literally untouchable. There was a moment while I was watching this where I genuinely thought that this movie might have Ghidorah kill Godzilla, and then Ghidorah just reigns over the universe and wipes everything out, and that was going to be the end. Like, <laughs> that seemed like a possibility to me. Yeah, and given how the story's gone to up to now with, the, you know, bad news mm-hmm. and tragedy, that really would fit. I, yeah, it would have fit. <laughs> I, I had a feeling we were going to see Godzilla get, like, sucked into another dimension or just completely obliterated, and the planet just become Ghidorah's domain, that could have genuinely been the end of it. And of course it wasn't, but that's how like no expectation you could possibly have for this film, you know, could all could live up to what ultimately happened in it. It's just, it defied any kind of expectation right until it's very, very end. But that that entire final battle with Ghidorah. um, And I, I wouldn't even technically call it a battle battle, more of an encounter, a confrontation with, with something that can't be fought which is yeah. terrifying. Yeah. It was it was really well handled, which is sad because I've seen a lot of fans essentially call that ending out as like, "Oh, it was such a lame battle. They bear like he he hit him like once and he couldn't even touch him." And again, everybody's welcome to their opinion, but that's not the point of what was happening. And if you went into, I'm sorry, if anybody went into movie 3 thinking that you'd get a monster fight, yeah, th- that that's on you. <laughs> That's on you. You obviously didn't learn from movie number two. And if you're still disappointed in that, then, I mean, I I can't do anything for you, man. Again, you don't have to love this film. You don't have to love any of these films. But just because the battle wasn't traditional doesn't mean it's not worthy of discussion or praise. And I thought it was very worthy of praise. I mean, it was about as close to a traditional battle as we got in the the entire trilogy. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was effective for what it was. And to me, it wasn't about the two having a traditional, you know, no holds barred tussle. It was about these two gods meeting, how the small little insignificant insects around them, the Exif and the humans, ultimately interacted with um, these two gods and either brought about their demise, their arrival, their, their victories, and whatever, and how those things ultimately interplayed with each other and all tied into this very strange but really interesting philosophy on uh, humanity and technology and religion and all that interesting stuff. And the the music in part three, the highlight of it is the Ghidorah theme for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really beautiful. And like, if you put any of the other movies any one of the Ghidorah movies from the Godzilla series, try going into one of those scenes where it's Ghidorah destroying a whole bunch of stuff and play that theme. That music (laughs) works every time. That's interesting. It just fits. But I I think in this one, it it works maybe the best, but it's, it's really beautiful. And, and, And we have that sort of electronic background, eerie sound going on. Then we get that the clarinet, and then we have the lower some lower strings. Then the oboe comes in, and it's sort of like warming up into the the main part of the theme. But it's mm-hmm. really good. It is really good. And the and it has like that low oboe, that the big part where it's like dun 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 dun. It's like wow, yeah, this is good. Yeah. It was it was it was grand. 
It was just grand and uh, horrific. <laughs> and like it, it inspired awe and terror. It takes a special kind of a composer with to look at material like that and give you something that makes you in awe of it, but also makes you not want to look at it because you think you're going to die. And like that is a wonderfully crazy balance to maintain when you're doing a theme, especially for a character that has had really fantastic themes in the past. I mean, if Akube's Ghidorah theme is one of his best, uh, it's been, you know, it was used right the way up into the nineties. Yeah. And, um, even, even Ko Otani's theme for Ghidorah Mm -hmm. for GMK, it does that same thing. But since you're not supposed to be scared of Ghidorah, it works in a little bit of a different way. It brings the grandeur and the awe and kind of the mystical quality of the character really to the forefront, but it's not supposed to make you scared of him. This theme from Hattori does something similar, but it injects the fear mm-hmm. in a really just, oh, it's so good. Like, I, I, this is why I need to get these soundtracks, because I would love to listen to that piece in particular. There are a couple pieces scattered throughout the, the trilogy that I really want to listen to on their own. Uh, because I, I collect movie soundtracks in, in general. That's just a passion of mine. And I have uh, the Godzilla soundtracks are my favorites. I love those those things to death. And I listen to all of them on their own relatively frequently. And I find that a lot of them stand very well without the film visuals. But I don't have the anime trilogy music yet. And uh, I'd love to see if that still holds true for, for these particular films. And I feel like something with Ghidorah's theme really would work well for solo listening, just kind of on its own. Yeah, I've been listening to that track a lot, and uh, the I know that the movie, the uh, soundtrack with the third one is on Spotify. That's where I found it. But I, I, oh, I definitely is. want to get a hold of these uh, soundtracks for this. It's, it's good. I, I listen to a lot of soundtracks in general of a lot of different movies oh, yeah. and kinds of movies, and I do like the Godzilla soundtracks. I got a, quite a few tracks from various films that I listen to sometimes, and. But this is just, uh, it's good. And it's not like this heavy, just doom, 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 really loud stuff. It's creepier than that. And and you want to get scarier rather than just stuff that's exploding in your ears with, uh, you know, brass section. Or yeah. yeah. You, you don't need that. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's better not to sound, you know, hackneyed and overblown. You, you just want something that is going to scare you and give you goosebumps and and get you prepared. And they, they use this track uh, three times, four times. And then at the beginning, Mm -hmm. uh, they, they use it too with one of the quite overblown uh, title displays for the, (laughs) the second and third (laughs) movies. Yeah. The titles are interesting beasts for these films. Yeah. It's like the liquid metal for the second one. And then for the third one, it's uh, Ghidorah, like the flowing through there and making the letters (laughs) out of it. But like, uh, both of those, it's like a 30-second ordeal. It's, it's pretty cool, though. I'd, I like how they, how they added some sort of flourish to the titles. Obviously, a big thing going on with the third movie is this, this part where Metfees and Huro are together, and Metfees is, like, holding him. Yeah. And then Huro is thrown into this series of... Uh, Almost like psychic psychic visions in a weird way. Yes, like psychic connection with yeah. Metfees. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But it's Interesting. it's different music from... It sounds a lot different than the rest of the music. And it sounds like Bach 
because you sort of it's sort it's like and i think what they were trying to go with that was that all of what Medfis talks about in this is about progress and civilization and cycle of civilizations which we'll get into that in a little bit they have this sort of bachian music playing and then they they show us uh, einstein's formulas they show us all kinds of interesting uh, things in this but the the part where he where basically it's Haro falling essentially through space and there's all of this stuff on the screen and it's like he's yeah. falling through the matrix it, it does look like he, he fell into a wachowski uh, uh, brothers or sisters now film doesn't yeah. it yeah it looks like he was just kind of like floating around there mm-hmm that entire sequence was just really, really bizarre and fascinating to watch. I, I could not take my eyes off the screen. It was incredible. <laughs> it really was. It was well edited. It was it, the music, like you said, was really, really interesting. And uh, it all kind of builds towards a really interesting moment because and it ties back to something in the beginning of the third film that I, I kind of picked up on where um, in the very beginning, the scientist guy mentions, you know, we made Godzilla with nuclear testing and I thought, man, is that the first time that they've really talked about that? Yeah. It is. They they finally brought the nuclear theme back in. And then, of course, we jump into uh, Metfis's little uh, crazy, trippy hallucination uh, he's giving to Haruo. And you do see atomic bombs. I, I got chills watching it. It was combined with the music. It was like horrific. <laughs> it was it was creepy. And to, to see all that happen and to see like what it all meant and how, you know, how he was talking about technology and all of this, this crazy stuff and, um, you know, how it was all put together and that it all ends in Mothra of all things. Yeah. One of the things I was really interested in was what they were going to do with Mothra. I think a lot of people were kind of convinced that they were just going to kind of forget Mothra existed. I said, you know, I, even if they do, you know, then there's, there's going to be a reason. And I just want to go watch this movie. So I didn't go in expecting Mothra to show up. And the way they implemented Mothra into this this dream trippy sequence was really interesting, too. The fact that they went to the egg and Mothra it doesn't actually physically show up, but you do get to see her in silhouette. You get to see her design. Um, she's really beautiful, as usual. And um, she acts as the kind of the divine force, kind of the fourth god in the room, as it were, because you've got Godzilla and Mothra, Mechagodzilla and Ghidorah. She's the fourth god and goddess, I suppose, in the room. And she, you know, she appears in the vision and uh, severs the connection between Metfis and Haruo. She manifests herself in their vision, which was really, really cool. And um, I haven't seen a lot about that appearance from other fans, but I'm sure a lot of people were probably like, oh, she's not even in the movie. She was just a vision. I'm just glad we got to see her. Yeah. I'm glad she has a, yeah, I'm glad we got to see her in some form. And we got to see the egg too, uh, which was pretty cool. It all kind of just lends itself to the bizarre nature of how the, the characters are dealt with in the monster characters specifically are dealt with in this trilogy. And the fact that even though it's about as non-traditional as you could possibly get, it works in a very weird way. At least it worked for me. I, I liked that Mothra had that ability to intercede in this kind of divine way to stop Metfis from controlling Haruo any further. And God knows what he would have showed him next. Yeah. Maybe it would have been the, the, cl the clincher that finally convinced Haruo to give Ghidorah all of the power it needed. You know, maybe this was the thing that would have turned him into a willing conduit. Yeah. Cause that's what, that's what Haruo was expected to do. He was expected yes, to was ex embrace Ghidorah and embrace the planet being destroyed and ending his suffering. Exactly. 
in, in the way that the exif talk about ending suffering, you know, suicide, <laughs> etc. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Then uh, something happens that Metfis does not predict, which is what Haro, for once, exercises his free will and he stops Metfis. Yeah, and that's that pretty much brings the whole thing crumbling down at that point. And if it weren't for that, Ghidorah would have killed Godzilla. Would, yeah, absolutely would have yeah, happened. Yeah, there's no doubt I mean, about Godzilla that. Godzilla was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the second time that Haruo has indirectly saved Godzilla's life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you can only imagine how uh, he must have felt knowing that he had done that. And maybe that kind of plays a part into the ultimate fate of his character at the end of the movie. But in this instance, he, he certainly... He made he made an interesting call there. I mean, he's he's made a couple of interesting choices in here. Like in the first movie, he he makes the choice to to go ahead with this plan, and then of course it doesn't go very well. And God, there's a that was just the small Godzilla. And then in the second film, he chooses his own humanity and Yuko over um, the the Bilasaludo's way and saves Godzilla in the process. And then in this film, he rejects the Exif way, mm-hmm. just like he rejected the Bilasaludo's way. And saves Godzilla in the process. Like he had two opportunities, very clearly good opportunities to see Godzilla destroyed, but it was ultimately, you know, a question of at what additional cost. Yeah. At and he decided to take the noble route. Whether or not that played a part in in what ultimately happens to him is kind of anyone's guess. But if it didn't, I'd be surprised. Honestly, I feel like it probably made his decision, his ultimate decision, clearer for him. I would say. Do you think the Exif helped get Haru to destroy the Mechagodzilla city? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's more manipulation there. But at the same time, that yeah, I don't think that was as much free will on, on the I part of I don't as much. I, yeah. 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 I think Haru's decision was very much influenced by specifically Metfeast because mm-hmm. he does beam in and say, oh, by the way, uh, that's, that stuff's going to spread yeah. across the planet if you don't kill it. Wait, don't listen to him. And then he blows them up. Yeah, because the exif that it's not in their uh, yeah. interest to have the Bill exactly. Saludo get away with anything. Yeah. So what we were seeing in that instance is really Metfis presenting Harwa with the illusion of oh, free will. Yeah. Uh-huh. He made him think he made the choice, but he he didn't make the choice entirely for himself. I mean, he made the choice in the end. He could have ignored Metfis, but I think Metfis knew Harwa wasn't going to ignore him. Right. So it was just another bit of manipulation from what might be the Godzilla series master manipulator at this point. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a more manipulative character in any of these movies. No, He's, uh, in the entire Godzilla franchise, yeah, there's nobody more manipulative. The entire franchise, there's there's just not a whole lot going on. There've, there's aliens that have used humans as leverage for invasions. There's uh, Yeah, it really blows, this really blows know, away the zillions from yeah. Astro Monster. It blows the it zillions away. It blows the original Planet X, uh, well, not Planet X, the simian aliens and yeah. their manipulation of Mafune out of the water. Uh, even the Futurians kind of manipulating Emmy in yeah. uh, Ghidorah, the th- they, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. And, you know, a couple of other scenarios here and there. But really, we're looking at three movies worth of groundwork leading up to the reveal of this ultimate plan for Metface to yeah. bring the universe under the control of his his elder god. <laughs> I mean, it's it's doesn't get much more manipulative than that. But he, he can't do it without Haruo, and in the end, Haruo does exercise that very elusive free will. Yeah. Ghidorah becomes defeatable. Mm-hmm. That's also the death blow for Metfis, too, because, 
you know, that he dies soon after that. And um, obviously, I don't, you know, Haruo owed Metfis a lot. I mean, Metfis was, in a lot of ways, his closest friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was a confidant. And even though it was all a lie and all a manipulation, there was still a connection there and a person that Haruo thought he could trust. And so, you know, that the, that he weeps over Metfis's body is not surprising. And it is a sad moment. I mean... I don't think anybody was out there was saying, "Oh no, Metfis is dead." No. <laughs> Everybody was probably quite relieved that this this butt was dead. But um, he's you know he's like, well, he's he's not here to mess up their, our universe anymore. But it's still a sad moment, and it's a sad moment for for Haruo in a lot of ways because his one exorc that one moment he exercised his free will cost this guy his life, and um, it may have saved everything else, but and it saves Godzilla. It saves Godzilla and it literally, you know, like humanity is not just no better off. They are worse off than um, at least in Haruo's eyes. And it's implied that this is the only way for mankind to continue to live. But in Haruo's eyes, he's they're now stuck. I mean, his confidant is gone. There's no Mecha Godzilla. There's no personnel to attack Godzilla now. There's no technology, even if they had the personnel to do it. Then, of course, that brings us to the end and how alone he is in what's left. After the dust has settled over three films worth of events, he still stands alone against Godzilla, but he's even more alone than he was before. And yeah. that ultimately leads into the end. And Metfis curses him at the, as he's dying. Yes. And, yes. and he says, Ghidorah will always be with you. Yeah. Which is... Yeah. That's the one that, you know, it's sort of like in, it's sort of like in religious ceremonies, you know, in Christianity where they're like, and also mm-hmm. with you, <laughs> it's like, and also, yeah, and with you and with you and with you, <laughs> but I am definitely, but you know, that's the worst thing that you want yeah. to be with you is to have Ghidorah always with you. Yeah. You do, you do not want a, uh, interdimensional three-headed elder, elder God Kaiju always with you. That would, that would be a bad, th- <laughs> very creepy. Yeah, that, that would not be a good thing. Yeah. The ending is a happy ending, but it is a pretty messed up happy ending. And I, I think a lot of people, <laughs> yes. th- this is one reason why they might not like this movie, the part three, because it, it, it does, uh, it's kind of sad, folks. And uh, It's sad. But at the same it, it time, it, but, yeah, what is he doing? It needed to happen. You have to realize he has to kill himself because he, yeah. once Dr. Martin shows him the technology that he's revived in one of these vultures. The technology definitely has to go. The channel for Ghidorah definitely has to go. Uh, he's always going to represent, you know, the warrior that refuses to give up even after the war is over. And in a lot of ways, if you look at it that way, he reminded me of Jinguji from Atragon. Yes, which I just this did whole, the episode this, on that yeah, last, the, the most right. recent one. And then uh, yeah. I, I did the whole special topic on... Uh, holdouts Japanese holdouts from the war yep. but yeah and that's yeah, ex- uh-huh. exact that's what he reminded he reminded me of that exact discussion Onoda. and the mm-hmm. fact that he y- yes yes um he really feels like that there's a lot of like a, an interesting na- Japanese nationalism yeah uh, present in Haruo's character and this third film the ending of this third film really drilled that home for me the idea that Haruo is a a war veteran that cannot accept defeat. And even though the new way will be peaceful, uh, the only way to ensure that that warlike nature doesn't taint humanity in the future is to remove it. And therefore he must remove himself. Yes. And and he must get rid of his hatred. That's the, the big point is that he 
must let go of his hatred, and this is the only way to do it. And he's the he last one on Earth with that hatred present. Yes. And he knows that he must get rid of it this way. And then he decides to take her along with him so that everything yeah. can can go. Because yeah, she's, she's basically the, in suspended yeah. animation. Comatose. She's not coming. She's yeah, She's not coming out. Yeah. She has she is not coming out of it. She's basically dead for the entire movie. Right. But it's worse because she's she's not dead, but she is dead. Mm-hmm. In a way, Haruo might not have been able to go through it through with it if he'd left her behind. Yeah. Because you know, in a lot of ways, he f- probably felt very complicit in her current uh, her current state of uh, being and being in that comatose state. And so she, he, yeah. The amount of guilt that he's feeling by this point is so extreme that that there's no other way to do deal with it than commit suicide. Like, I mean, how many people does he get killed? You know, as, as the, the entire as the tool human race. Of the <laughs> All but eight it's people. Everybody. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's that too. It's it's guilt. It's it's yeah. hatred. It's and it's destroying the technology. It's getting rid of. Uh, yeah, the part where he realizes and sees Ghidorah, that is chilling. Mm-hmm. That's scary. It is scary because it's this inevitability of uh, the cyclical nature of technology coming and going. You know, as as you know, humanity continues to progress. And if, if it's weird and it's it is genuinely terrifying to think that, you know, we are at this point in the film as humanity where we're basically cave people, very primitive clothing, very little technology. Yeah. No and, technology, and, and, and in it's fact. like humans don't necessarily want to live like this. They're like, what no do one, they say? You know, they want to yeah. get out of this primitive culture. Exactly. That's what would be on the minds of quite a few people. Exactly. But that might be the only way, like embracing that might be the only way for humanity to even survive, continue to, to survive. Exactly. And so if and I think the other aspect of that is, of course, that if Haruo knows that if there is any potential beginning to the path that will lead to Ghidorah coming back, it is through him. Yeah. It's not just because he's still a conduit, but because, you know, through him, that vengeance still lives, that that anger still mm-hmm. goes uh, yeah, on into the future, it could, it could like, and at this point we have to remember, he's also going to be a father very soon. Yeah. What kind of a father would a man filled with that much vengeance be to the child of a civilization that needs to not be filled with hate and vengeance in order to continue to live in a world where Godzilla is not just a king, but a God. And that is a really fascinating way to look at it. Because if you take all of those things and you combine them, if you combine the fact that he's a warrior without a war to fight, that he's filled with anger, that he can't let ruin the civilization, and then the fact that Ghidorah sees through him and the technology could be coming, like his death isn't just a convenient way to end the series and get rid of him. It is the only thing that they could have done. His only path forward is into Godzilla. Like he has to, like that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's terribly tragic. But his death, like the moment Godzilla's beam hits the ship and the ship goes away, and the movie the movie ends a couple seconds later. But in that couple sec that those few moments after the ship explodes and it's just Godzilla on screen, there's a very brief but very eerie feeling of peace. Yeah, and it feels very wrong. Like when you're watching the movie, it just feels very very wrong to be watching this thing and thinking, my God, like he's dead. He just he just his ship just rammed into Godzilla. And he's gone now and he took Yuko and it's horribly, horribly sad. But that moment 
you feel tension go away. It's very weird because you'd think the death of your protagonist would, especially in the last five seconds of your movie, would make you a little on edge, a little tense. But there's this weird feeling of peace that come that came over me, at least, when I watched that scene. And those couple of seconds of silence as Godzilla stood there, bam, fade to black, roll credits. And my head was spinning. And I thought, I've just seen something really, really intelligent. It's going to go over a lot of people's heads. And and like I've been saying this whole episode, to each their own, not everybody has to love this thing or even like it or even ever watch them again or give them a chance or anything. I mean, but there's something going on in this trilogy that's really special. And the, the ending is kind of remarkable. The the other thing is is, too, with the ending is that he does experience peace himself right before because you see he that expression of calmness come over his face it's the first calmness he's experienced that we can actively see his character yeah. like going through yeah. for the, all three movies yeah so he's finally he's been even, given yeah. a couple of seconds of peace yeah. and realization that it's over yeah he's going to end things and it's taken all of this sacrifice and all of this to realize that the way to end it isn't for him to kill Godzilla, but for Godzilla to kill him. It brings this trilogy to a very unusually satisfying climax. It's very weird to describe it, but yeah. it's, it's sad, certainly, and it's tragic and... You know, you kind of wish things hadn't gone that way, but it's the way it, 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 when it's all over and you're looking back at all three of them, you realize that it was kind of the only way it could go, but nobody could have predicted that. Yeah, no way. Which, which I, um, <laughs> no way. Yeah. I had, I had no and, idea. And what do we see right before it fades to black? The flowers. Flowers. The, the flowers that the- bloomed in spring. And that's recalling the charm that his parents gave him that had mm-hmm. the spring flower inside it. Exactly. Yeah, and it's recalling to that. And Har- the name Haruo does mean spring. Yeah. And of course, you know, spring symbolizes rebirth. So it represents humanity getting a chance yeah. and, and yeah, peace getting a chance. And that's why we see the flowers at the end. It's just an, it's an, what an incredible way to just wrap up your film, man. You've got the death of the character Godzilla standing there, flower and credits. It's it's powerful, and I like I I love films that end with that one kind of enigmatic symbolic image of things. Uh, flowers are a very like a, a popular choice for a lot of films like that. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth yeah. ends with a flower blooming. And uh, there's a kind of a different significance to that than in this one, but that I, I kind of reminded me of that. And even though it, we don't actually see the flower bloom in this particular film, it has bloomed and it's there. And it's, uh, it is a very hopeful image and it's very unusual because it's just followed the death of your character, but there is that brief little quiet moment of hope and then you're shown hope and then it's, it's over. And you're just kind of sitting there with your head spinning going, what in the world did I just see? And why am I like about to cry? Yeah. (laughs) Like, why is this, why is this emotional? This is amazing. And like, there, there's actually a part where, uh, Haru is with Metfis. He's like, why are you showing me this? Yes. (laughs) And I, am thinking like, Oh, Oh God. I think a few people in the audience might be thinking this right now at the end of this movie. (laughs) Like what? Exactly. Just see why are you showing me this? But yeah, (laughs) I saw, I saw a lot of reactions to that effect where people were saying just finished planet eater. Don't know what the heck I just watched. 
And um, yeah, and of course the like, ending got spoiled f- for yeah. me because everybody on Facebook said that you know he he committed suicide, and I was like, oh, thanks. Yeah, but, uh, I see. Yeah. I have I I got spoiled for a couple things in the first two movies. I think I was even spoiled about the the big Godzilla ending of the first one, where the you know Godzilla dies and then the actual oh, one shows uh-huh. up. And some, but that one, I if I remember correctly, that one did get spoiled for me, and I was I was a little miffed. I was not happy about that, so I avoided spoilers for Planet Eater like the plague. I wanted to know nothing. I stayed away from anywhere that might talk about it. I, I just did my best to not, and I did. I I didn't know anything that would happen from frame one to frame A to frame Z. I had no idea what was going to happen. I'm shocked that I was able to stay away from spoilers as much as I I did, but I am so glad I did because knowing what was going to happen in this film would have made the experience of seeing it the first time so much less awesome. I did see a lot of very confused people because <laughs> after I saw the movie, I got online just to just to kind of see, like, I don't really have any interest in seeing a lot of other reviews, but I definitely had an interest in seeing what other people's interpretations might have been for that film, and especially for the ending. I saw some interesting ones. I definitely saw some weird kind of kind of things, and a lot, most people, I, I think, were just kind of saying, "Oh, he's dead," and nobody was sad about it because he sucked. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I yeah, a lot of very confused people. That said, you and I are not the only human beings on there, this earth that. <laughs> saw the ending and got what it meant. So it's certainly like this, this entire anime trilogy certainly isn't for, for everyone. It's, it's not going to be everyone's milieu as it were, but, um, f- you know, for, for my, for my money, you know, it ended really, really satisfyingly, which is weird to say, but it ended, like I said before, the only way I think it could have it's, it's, it was an interesting ride. It was an interesting ride. If nothing else. The next episode of this podcast will be the third of the three-part episode on the anime trilogy, which is the related topic. I call it Godzilla Bigger Than Human Existence. We will delve deep into this story because it's one of the deepest Godzilla stories ever written. If you're on the fence or if you don't like the anime trilogy, at least the subjects that we bring up in this episode are exciting to think about. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff. Kyoe donated at the Kaiju Scholar level, and Sean donated at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what is going on in the show, and you get to message with me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Sturchel. I'm Daniel DeManna. And this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time. <laughs>